0: I've started recording. So anything we say from here Canon will be used as an introduction or an outro.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and welcome to Sons of Thunder, the podcast that's better for you than listening to an evening of love song dedications. Gentlemen, great to see you. And uh, I'm really looking forward to today's episode.
2: I think it's better for you than Oprah as well.
0: Probably is. Is Oprah still a thing?
2: I don't know. I, 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 don't, I, watch TV, I
1: don't know. No, 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 no! I never watched it. I, I, <laughs> I, hear, I hear you <laughs> asking for a friend.
0: <laughs> you, you met someone once who watched Oprah.
1: <laughs> Father Dave, do you ever hear love song dedications? No. Yeah. It was on in Sydney, and I think they might have simulcast it elsewhere in Australia. The first time I ever heard it was 2002 on Youth Mission Television. It had that much of an impact. I remember where I was, and what year it was driving down the highway after a full ministry day with youth mission team. We'd finished praying. Someone turned the radio on and love song dedications was on. And I dead set didn't know for about 20 or 30 minutes, whether it was a serious love song dedication show, or it was a comedy takeoff. (laughs) Uh,
0: So is this where people called up to dedicate their love song to somebody?
1: That's
2: why you compare it to this because you can't tell whether it's serious or a comedy <laughs> tape. Or... Do
1: you want to do some dedications, Marty? You're getting good at guitar now. I've got
2: one thing that I've got two things to say actually. Feast of the Guardian Angels today. Did you did you
1: say Mass?
0: Uh, I'm assuming you're directing that to me rather than to Sam. Yeah, uh, no, no <laughs>
1: I went to Mass, but no, I just participated.
0: I have concelebrated a Mass this morning. We, we, did, we had the clergy conference, we had all the priests and the bishop, oh. uh, but then I've got another mass at the parish tonight.
2: Because I went to mass this morning too and found out that it was Feast of the Guardian Angels. And I'm just really curious as to, because we don't sort of talk about Guardian Angels much these days, we probably should, but doing a homily on the Guardian Angels, I just think it's interesting and different to usual. Any, any comments?
0: <laughs> what do you think about what Marty thinks? I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to my homily tonight.
2: We won't, we won't be at your Mass, so you can tell us.
0: <laughs> this could very quickly become an episode about angels rather than about what we meant to talk about. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I'm fascinated by angels. Thomas Aquinas wrote a whole stack about angels uh, uh, and the whole spiritual realm.
2: The angelic doctor.
0: Yeah, the angelic doctor. Yes, yeah, so I'm a big fan of the guardian angels because I have regularly been saved from doing stupid things that should have killed me, and I would be very grateful to the guardian angels who have kept me from doing those stupid things or save me when I have done those stupid things.
1: Interesting this morning in mass that I picked up in the gospel that there is actually a direct reference where Jesus is talking about the young ones and says they're angels in heaven. Mm. Mm. It's not just some fanciful concept. I, and I just hadn't picked no, up no, on we that did, before. didn't make it
0: up. No, I didn't. Sadly, it's one of those things that always gets portrayed as like a little kid thing, you know, like something you tell little kids to, help them to sleep well at night mm. but the spiritual battle is actually pretty full mm. on yeah
1: which brings us to today's episode no no before that i've got one other thing oh. to say this is
2: for you sam
0: come
1: on yeah. i had something else to say about love song dedications and i let it go because i thought <laughs> the moment's passed you can let and, it go but i'm not and, letting this go
0: and i've been really restrained because i can easily rant on for an hour at this point about the spiritual battle but we will leave that well, for another we, episode we, 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 marty though that's
2: great nah. Write it to the list no nah, i'm done <laughs> <going> with this <laughs> Remember Paulie? You know Paulie, Paul Batten in, um, yeah. in Spain. I got, a, got this message from him during the week saying, hey, Neville, because he calls me Neville, even though that's not my name. But anyway, <laughs> I'm walking the Camino just to go. And it made me think of you, Sam. I'm walking the Camino and doing a YouTube channel, documenting it for memories. Hopefully get a few punters along the way for their own lives. In brackets, actually to get famous. Now, I probably wouldn't be talking about what I'm talking about if I wanted to get famous. Feel free to check it out. It's a, um, I think it's called Fast Car Philosopher on YouTube. And I wrote back and said, awesome, man. Take that, Sam. If you find a puma, make sure you take a photo. <laughs> and he wrote back and said, I'm a rookie in terms of mileage and noble causes, but at least I worked as an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then followed that up in quick succession with the only pumas he found were a pair of runners he took from a homeless guy. <laughs>
1: Paul, if you're listening to this podcast or walking the Camino, I hope you've got a blister.
0: (laughs) And for the listeners who don't understand the Puma reference, go back and listen to all the other episodes. I
1: once came face to face with a Puma and Marty refuses to believe that I did because I didn't get a photo. Yep. I've just realised I've started eating again without even thinking about it. Put the cashews
2: down. So that's a wonderful segue into talking about the Eucharist, Sam. You've just started eating. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Actually, in Paul's letter to Corinthians, First Corinthians, he does talk about you've got homes, eat there. There's a difference between eating our meal and coming forward for the body of Christ. So I, I should have eaten at home before we even speak about the body of Christ.
2: So, Or well, you could just take Friday seriously and fast, but you know, whatever. Actually, I
1: have been. I have been. That's why oh, I'm really I hungry. I haven't had lunch. <laughs> it's mid-afternoon. I haven't had lunch. I am fasting today. I just accidentally reached for a few cashews. It happens. <laughs> <laughs> the spiritual battle, it is enormous and Surely one of the single greatest gifts that the church has been blessed with is the Eucharist. And yet it caused so much confusion and division within the church over the last 2000 years. Father Dave, are you in any position to give us some of the, the history behind that? Uh, there were times I remember over in Slovakia when I, was doing, when I was doing the walk around the world where I was invited along to a, a non-Catholic Christian service and went along and, and invited them to pray for the complete unity of the church. And once it had finished, it was on a Sunday, and I said, uh, do you know where the local Catholic church is? And the guy said to me, why? I said, because I want to go to Mass. And he was actually genuinely offended, and he said, you've just been to church. And I, I explained to him, well, we just sat there and we prayed, You're and that correct. was lovely. I've been to
2: church, but I haven't been to I Mass. I have been to
1: Mass. And I explained to him the Eucharist stand he half understood, but I still get the impression that he left a bit offended that I didn't consider the church service as having fulfilled my obligation. Mm. So where's the division happen? Where's the split happen? Do we go back to what around 1000 AD? Was that roughly where it started to?
0: No, no. So for the first 1500 years, the church's understanding of the mass is pretty standard. Everyone understands the church mass as being the divine liturgy. So, what you're referring to there Sam, about around the turn of the millennium was the split between Catholics and Orthodox. But our understanding of the mass is the same. The way we celebrate it, it's a little bit different. But the, the Orthodox have the, very much the same understanding that the Eucharist is the body of Christ.
1: When was transubstantiation well, defined. first defined?
0: Well, so that goes back around the scholastic period. So, so the scholastic period was a particular era of theology where in the Western church, in the Catholic church, they were defining everything very specifically. And so... Water, not lemonade. Yes. The word transubstantiation was defined. I I don't know whether it was the first defined by Thomas Aquinas, but he definitely used the term. It it was where they were trying to use the philosophy of Aristotle to try and explain theology. So the teaching around the Eucharist has always been there. That was just a particular theological explanation of what goes on in the Eucharist.
1: So what is it?
0: Well, I'm just wondering whether I should answer your first question first about when did it, when when did, when when did the argument start was around the 1500s. So Martin Luther had his whole reaction against the Catholic church. Luther still believed in the Eucharist. He still believed that the mass was the Catholic understanding of the mass. However, he used a slightly different theology. Instead of transubstantiation, he referred to consubstantiation. I can explain the difference in a moment. But then you had these other reformers who came in a little bit later, guys like Calvin and Zwingli. It was only around then that they actually got rid of the idea of the mass as actually being the divine liturgy, you know, the real body of Christ, more like a symbol. So if you were to go to a Lutheran church, the, the, the Lutherans believe that it is the body and blood of Christ. Mm. Uh, but what we would now see as being the standard Protestant belief, that actually came some decades after Luther uh, and he didn't particularly agree with their theology.
2: Mm. Do the Lutherans keep it in a gold box?
0: I'm not sure what they do in terms of tabernacles. Because
2: if there was anything more precious than gold, we'd, we'd keep it in that.
1: There yes. is a theologian I know up in Sydney who was a Lutheran minister, now a Catholic. And when he became a Catholic, he, he said he was asked many times by, by Catholics, how are you coping now with all the liturgy? And he said he had to kind of bite his lip a little, little bit because for him, it was a case of, no, no, you have no idea what I've come from. We were more liturgical than you are in mm. these particular parishes. Mm. It, it yeah. was a really strong sense of liturgy. In yes. that sense. So I don't. I don't know whether they. I'll ask him. I don't know whether they did have a tabernacle. But uh, mm-hmm. actually, I'll tell you what. We're at the start. I'll send him a text message right now. And by the end, All right. There you
2: message. go. Was that the first question or the second question?
0: That was the first question. I think there right. was, was a second question about transubstantiation or what actually is it. I think it was what, what,
1: what is the Eucharist? Because and did you guys go through this? Those years of just sitting there in mass, wondering, is it really? God is it bread? Is it symbolic of us coming together? What is it?
2: I, I did no, i didn't <laughs> i um being a particularly precocious child I, I remember in about grade two or something telling my parents that I was not going to go to mass anymore if they were not going to let me receive the Eucharist, so they put me in the car and drove me down to the parish priest <laughs> to explain myself, and the parish priest said, "What is it? I said it's jesus he said all right yep you can um you can make your first holy communion just do the classes afterwards
1: mm, good on him yeah sorry yeah. i'm sending a text message
2: yeah i thought that deserved a bit more of a response from you Sam.
1: <laughs> sorry i wasn't i actually wasn't listening i'm i'm reading <laughs> wait one you second you can just you can just
0: edit in some great sound of amazement from sam later <laughs> oh on. really so now that you've got a recording of that, you can just put it in anywhere. Oh, really? After any statement. Oh, really?
1: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I,
0: I I'm not sure when I first twigged to the reality of the mass. Um. Yeah, like I I, I think I I loved going to mass, even though I didn't really understand what it was, and it was only when I. Was about eighteen or so. I think I really understood the theology, and then I had that same sort of reaction that you just had, Sam. Oh, really?
1: Oh, it's, it's actually going to help <laughs> me if Marty, you do repeat what you said.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that oh, my message has been sent.
1: So
2: clock's ticking. Okay. What I was saying is, I was a particularly, <laughs> I was a particularly precocious child, and when I was <sighs> in about grade two. I told my parents that I was, I refused to go to mass anymore unless they let me receive the Eucharist to which they put me wow. in the car and drove me down to the parish priest who asked me, what is it? And I said, it's Jesus. And he said, well, you can make your first Holy Communion this, this weekend and do the classes afterwards.
1: Wow. That's actually a very saint story like.
2: I don't want to, don't overplay it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the awkward things, I, I, I'm not sure whether other priests experienced this, but When parents try to teach their little kids what's going on in Mass, and they point to the Eucharist and say, that's Jesus. But the kid thinks that you're pointing to the priest.
1: Yes, my nephew did that. My nephew with my sister, they were driving through Launceston, and my nephew suddenly exclaimed, it's Jesus!
0: (laughs) I was doing some shopping down at Coles recently, and there was this little year one kid from the primary school with her dad in the frozen food section. And she sees me and she's like, it's Jesus. And I thought, <laughs> this is going to be really awkward. So I, I, I went to the other aisle. But then they moved to that aisle as well. And every time she saw me, she was like, there he is. That's so why I found myself hiding from this five-year-old.
1: If you, ever, if you ever thought that there was responsibility on your ministry, <laughs> there it is. Yes.
2: That's right. In persona, Christi. It is easier if you go to adoration to point at the Eucharist in the monstrance with kids and say, that's Jesus, because there's no one else that you could possibly
1: confuse. I didn't know that adoration existed until I met you, Marty, and your folks. So roughly the year 2000, so I was 18 years old, 19 Mm. years old. That, That was the first time I knew that it existed. Yeah, well. So do you want to give a quick explanation for anyone listening who doesn't quite know what adoration is?
2: Sure.
0: Well, we, we haven't quite explained what the eucharist is yet should we, should
1: we do well that i'll
2: first? tell you what father i'll explain adoration and then you explain the eucharist so adoration is when the eucharist is displayed in a monstrance which is a typically golden little structure that sits on the altar framework, framework little well and monstrance comes from the latin to show so it's a device that shows the eucharist to the world it's normally made quite pretty with a sort of...
1: You stop doing hand movements on a podcast, hand, Marty. Hand movements
2: don't work very well. <laughs> so you can go into the church or the chapel and just pray in front of the physical presence of Jesus. Mm. There you go. I'm, I'm tapping out. There What's you go. the Eucharist, I've, Father Dave?
1: Hang on. Before I'm, you get to that, I've just received a message back. Yeah. and the, the, he, He's actually... I think he's got a, a spelling mistake, but... <laughs> It actually changes the complete context. So I'll read what he's written and then I'll tell you what I think he meant. He said, there was no tabernacle because Lutherans didn't deserve the hosts. Now I think (laughs) what he meant was preserve the hosts or reserve or reserve the hosts. (laughs) So no, there was no tabernacle.
0: (laughs) There we go. No mention of whether they're worthy to have the Eucharist or not. So, so what actually is the Eucharist? Well, the word Eucharist means Thanksgiving, but that doesn't really explain much of what's going on. It's, um, I, I can't really give a simple explanation. My most basic thing is to say the Eucharist is the physical presence of Jesus in the form of bread and wine. But it's much more than that, because I don't think you can really separate the Eucharist from the Mass. So you've got, you got to try and understand what the Mass is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And so the mass is many things at once. It's probably the best way to explain it.
1: Let's clear that up. (laughs) We do. We actually, we do have on our list of podcasts to do. One day is one on the mass itself, which you may even have to break up into a few segments. Okay. We'll get to that.
0: Well, very simply, you know, so Jesus, the whole of the Bible is a love story. You can't understand it without it being a love story. And so Jesus, who is the bridegroom, is wanting to give himself to his bride, his people. You can understand the mass as basically being a a wedding or a betrothal ceremony. Uh, This is God giving himself to his bride or, or in a sense, betrothing himself with the fulfillment to be reached in, in heaven. And so on one angle, you've got a whole bunch of marriage imagery in the mass. The words that Jesus uses in the last supper are actually kind of similar to the words used in the Jewish betrothal ceremony where the the young man would give a cup of wine to his beloved and say, this is a covenant in my blood given for you. So when, when the disciples saw that in the Last Supper, they would have realized, hang on, this is something weird going on here. Why are you trying to marry us? Hmm. The fact that in the Eucharist, when you receive Jesus, you, you walk down the aisle. So it's like the bride walking down the aisle to receive the bridegroom. He makes the profession of his love saying, this is my body. And you say, I do or amen. So, so that's one angle of it. The, the, the other side of it is, I suppose, the way, the way that Jesus' love is revealed is through the death and resurrection. And so there's a whole understanding of the Eucharist as being the fulfillment of the Passover. Yeah. So for the Jewish people, they understand the Passover as being a, a representation or, or, or a making present of that one saving event when they walk through the Red Sea. If you, if you ask any Jewish person today, when they celebrate the Passover, they're not just remembering what happened 4,000 years ago, but they feel that they're actually walking through the Red Sea with their ancestors. And they well, use this particular but, word, memoria, to explain that. So, Marty, you're going
2: to... There's a piece in Leviticus or somewhere which explicitly says that, doesn't it? It says, like, when your youngest child asks you why you, know, why you celebrate the Passover, and the answer is because... It's a celebration of when I was freed from Egypt. Yes. Not, yeah, not it's, when, it's not when my distant relatives were, but when I was.
0: Yes. Yeah. And, and, and like I said, they, they use this key word of like memoria. And so when Jesus says, do this as a memorial of me, what he's doing is he's saying, this is now the fulfillment of the Passover. So every time you celebrate this ritual, you're actually made present to the new Passover, which is Calvary. You know, it's the death and resurrection. Mm. So we're not repeating it over and over again, as some Protestants would say. But God does something a bit weird with time and space, and we're actually present at Calvary. We're we're there being saved by the blood of Christ. Yeah, the
2: question there for me is interesting. I think when Jesus says, do this in memory of me, who's actually like doing the remembering? Because we are, but I think God the Father is as well.
0: Well, it's not remembering. That's the thing. Like, like remembering is remembering something which happened back then. Yeah. This is actually do this as a as a memorial, which yeah. is a very different word. It's you will be there. You will actually be be physically present to it. Yeah. So, so, so we're not remembering what Jesus did. We're actually present to the death and resurrection of Christ. So every They're time you go to mass, standing at the foot of the cross. Yeah. Every, every time with, you go to mass, you say at the foot of the cross
1: with John and Mary.
0: Most eye-opening talk
1: that I've listened to in a long time was by dr scott hahn Uh, it was Mm -hmm. called the fourth cup that particular talk i'd highly recommend it in that though he talks about how for any jewish reader of the new testament when they're reading through the last supper there is something from their perspective which is obviously wrong Mm. because we are not familiar with the passover meal and how you would what you'd actually do at an intricate level we just read through the last yeah, we just read through the Last Supper as that's what it was. But a Jewish person would read it and think, hang on a second, you've missed the most important part. He hasn't had the fourth cup. Because even though it doesn't actually talk about the other cups, he talks about what happens around those cups. And so you naturally assume that those three cups have been consumed. And there is mm. one there with a the cup. The fourth cup is not consumed until on the cross where Jesus says, I thirst. He's then given, mm. was it vinegar? Yeah,
0: in and the then says gospels, it is done Yeah, so in John's gospel, it's it's different to the other gospels. So 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 what Scott Hahn's referring to there is particularly John's gospel, where it's that cup of consummation. Yeah, so so when he says it, it is finished or it is consummated, he's, he's basically saying yeah, that that's the end of the of the Passover.
2: So this is the same cup in the garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is saying, "Let this cup pass me by, but your will be done."
0: Not sure. Mm. Perhaps, not mm. sure.
1: I'm going to say yes. Even though Father Dave says he's not
0: sure, Marty, I'm saying yes. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> I'm probably more likely to have a scripture scholar throw something at me. So
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we've got the, the, the mass being a marriage. We've got the mass being the Passover. There's also the idea of the mass being an encounter with heaven. So in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 4 and 5, there's this image of where heaven opens and John sees this lamb that looks like it's been sacrificed, but it's still alive. And all the saints and angels are gathered around in worship. And that's basically the mass. You know, it's the mm-hmm. fact that this is a crucified and risen Lord on the altar with all the saints and angels in worship. And so what John's sort of pointing out is that what we celebrate here on earth is also what's being celebrated in heaven. As Sam holds up before us a picture of that. Famous icon, Sam's just holding oh, up a, a story that, of the the, uh, it's the supper lamb supper, Doctor Scott Hahn.
2: That, but that icon that's on the front of that is in Ghent, in Belgium. I've seen it.
0: Mm. Oh, all right,
2: the lamb with its throat cut and the blood's coming out, of
1: standing on the altar, and the blood's going into the chalice. Yeah,
0: is it Ghent, which has also got that thing of the the Last Judgment? Is that is that the one? Is... Isn't
2: that the Sistine Chapel? No, I don't know.
0: No. There is a famous church icon, I think it's in Belgium, yeah. where Peter Hitchens, uh, Christopher Hitchens' brother, had a profound conversion looking at that painting. Oh, really? He went from being atheist to Christian just by looking at artwork. Wow. So, yeah.
1: When it comes to the Eucharist, I went from being a-, a doubter, I'm not really sure, like I believe in God, but I don't really know what the Eucharist is, to being absolutely amazed that, it is real as probably a twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five-year-old. Actually, maybe more. I was in Melbourne. So, Father Dave, when you were a seminarian in Melbourne and we were hanging out,
0: mm.
1: so I would have been I would have been twenty-six or twenty-seven. Wow. That was when I actually began to believe. And what had happened was one of your brothers, Father Tony Schick, had been admonishing us to do some preparation before mass Mm. to not just rock up flustered, but actually set us some time aside, half an hour, one hour before mass and begin to prepare for mass. And he was in particular encouraging us to perhaps a good way to prepare would be either sit in silence in prayer or read the scriptures that we are going to then read in mass just so that they, they sink in a bit better. And I did, I picked up my Bible. I did it once. And it had such a profound impact on me because I picked it up and opened up randomly to John chapter six and oh. read the bread of life discourse and was actually so confronted that Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in me. Mm. And that in John six sixty six, a lot of them just turned and walked away saying, this is, <laughs> this is a hard teaching. And they walk away, and Jesus then turns to the disciples and says, well, what about you? Mm. In, are you yeah, one, really
2: interesting, because he didn't turn around to them and say, yeah, you know, it didn't really mean. Oh, you it's misunderstood just, me. It's a, it's a symbol. It's just, you know, he said, are you, you know, what about I you? I meant it metaphorically. Are you in or you're out?
1: And I, I had to reread that so many times, and I felt utterly confused that I, I'm sure I've heard that, that particular passage time and time again growing up, and yet here I am at 26, 27 years of age, And the pennies finally dropping that Jesus did mean this is my flesh.
2: So what about the humility of Jesus, right? Like not only does he become a human for us, which is maybe like, like, would you, would you choose to become a fish or something in order to, you know, save the fish species, you know, something like that. (laughs) Not only that, but then, but then he also becomes even humbler yet as becoming food, for us in order for us to become him. Mm. Like, oh, yeah. It's
1: actually it's, extraordinary, it's, isn't it?
0: That, that, that hits me so often when I celebrate mass, because in, in a lot of cultures, there's this idea that you can never be above the king. Like I know in, in Fiji, that's very strong. Like, like wherever the king mm. of the tribe is, if, if he's sitting on a chair, you've got to be lower than him. Or if he sits on the floor, you've got to virtually lie down. You can't be higher than him. And I often think of that in terms of the Eucharist, because I'm like, well, if that's, how low my king is going, I've wow. got to go lower than that. Yeah. So much for me feeling good about whatever I've just preached in the homily. I've got to be humble enough to be lower than bread. Yeah, it oh, really, um,
2: really turns the table, isn't it? <laughs> That's better how humble you are. You couldn't possibly be yeah. more humble
1: than our king. That's right. I, I saw something the other day that it, it was it was on YouTube. It was, do you know Carl Sagan? Yeah. So he's probably no. famous in the, what, 70s and 80s?
0: Yeah. Famous oh. astrophysicist or something oh, right, wrote okay. that book, contact yeah. the whole and a- extraterrestrial, extraterrestrial life and stuff. And wasn't that a atheist as far as I know. Yeah. Uh, but he was explaining the,
1: the, what a fourth dimension would be like. Mm. So he was going into the mathematics of a fourth dimension. And so in order to explain the fourth dimension, he showed what a third dimension looks like for someone who lives in a two dimensional world, because we understand three dimensions. Mm. We cannot understand a fourth dimension. So he says, well, let's look at what a two what a three-dimensional world would look like for someone in two dimensions And he proceeds I'd actually recommend someone to just for our listeners look up Carl Sagan fourth dimension Four dimensions
2: now a three-dimensional creature exists in flatland only partially only a plane a cross-section through him can be seen so when the three-dimensional creature first reaches flatland, it's only the points of contact which can be seen. So the square as time goes on, sees a set of objects mysteriously appear from nowhere. His only conclusion could be that he's
1: gone bunkers. Because what he ends up doing whilst he doesn't mention God in any way, shape or form is effectively show how God's becomes one of us, both in the form of Jesus, but then also in the, in the Eucharist, and how mm. we just can't get our head around what we're seeing. Mm.
2: Mm.
1: And, and we just see a shadow, which was actually the language he was using. We just see a shadow of the reality that is in front of us. So you
2: see, while we cannot imagine the world of four dimensions, we can
0: certainly think about it perfectly well. We did mention this in a previous episode, but there is a famous C.S. Lewis quote where he tries to explain God from, from that idea of like, like people in a two-dimensional world trying to understand a three-dimensional world. And he says, you know, like if, if a three-dimensional person came into a two-dimensional world and tried to explain it to us, we'd think that they're insane and mad. And we're just like, it doesn't make sense. So maybe Carl mm. Sagan had been reading C.S. Lewis. Perhaps. <laughs>
1: It's happened. It's genuinely happened before, where something that's come from a faith background then gets interpreted into a non-faith scenario, yeah. and that's <laughs> the one that becomes famous.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we hadn't mentioned C.S. Lewis for a while, so we had to get in there somehow. Yeah,
1: mm. yeah. <clears throat> Let's tick that box. <laughs> so, what happens at the Eucharist during Mass?
0: Well. Maybe this is where we got to go back to that big word, transubstantiation. Oh, and you're going to explain consubstantiation. Consubstantiation. So basically, Thomas Aquinas and his fellow scholastic theologians were trying to use philosophy as a way of understanding theology. They had recently rediscovered the writings of Aristotle.
2: The philosopher.
0: The philosopher. Aristotle had this idea of basically like the, the form of an object and then the interior essence of it. Or the, the, the substance and the accidents was the technical terms. So something could look like wood, but its essence would be woodiness. You know, so you could, you could then chop it up into small little bits. So it would no longer look like a table, but it would still have the essence of wood, even though the outward form had changed. Is that, that kind of idea. So, so what Aquinas was trying to say was that normally the interior essence stays the same, but the outward form changes. Whereas in the Eucharist, the opposite happens where the outward form stays the same, but the interior essence changes. Mm. So the substance changes, but the accidents or the the external form stays the same, hence transubstantiation.
2: Yeah. The substance has been transformed. Yeah.
0: So it looks like bread at the beginning. It looks like bread at the end, but it's interior substance is.
2: It actually was bread at the beginning and it's it's actually Jesus at the end.
1: Yes. Now. We will, in our next episode, be presenting something that I'm really excited about. We hope it hasn't happened yet. We haven't recorded it. We are quite excited <laughs> to potentially
0: be recording we have, an episode we on, something in, which we hope: something
1: <laughs> Yes, on yes. Eucharistic miracles. Yes So we will, uh, we will delve deeply into that in an entire episode. So apologies for anyone if you'd like us to go deep right now and we're just going to skim over it because we are going deep in the next episode. Eucharistic miracles, as in
2: in the times when Jesus has proven that the Eucharist is himself. Yes. Yes, Marty. (laughs) I'm excited too.
0: You'll have to wait till the next episode. (laughs) But anyway, the the idea of consubstantiation, I, I don't know the full ins and outs of the history, but I get the impression that Luther was just reacting to the scholastic theology era. And he was basically saying, look, the the important thing is that it's Jesus. We don't need to be having all these debates about whether it's bread or whatever. So, so consubstantiation was trying to say both the bread and the divinity of Christ are there together. But yeah, it sounds to me more like a reaction than an actually well thought out argument.
2: Let's clear that up then.
1: (laughs) So in the, in scripture, we hear that we are to be essentially to become divine. Yes, the the Eucharist in two, itself. Two,
2: two Peter one something,
1: <laughs> verse four.
0: Two, Peter oh, one verse four. Nice,
1: nice tandem work there, guys. Thanks, thanks. I
2: read it. I read it the other day after after <laughs> all your promptings, Father Dave.
1: <laughs> the Eucharist surely is a major player in that. Oh, definitely. Yeah.
2: So I I talked to my uh, personal theologian, my uh, my old man, my the deacon, and he suggested that. Uh, not careful don't misquote him he might be listening no who's the confessions guy augustine Augustine. sorry let me keep going (laughs) let let me start that again but augustine probably would have said that there's only really two sacraments there's initiation baptism confirmation and eucharist and then there's eucharist
0: as in once you're initiated yeah as as in once you're initiated the
2: the the, the eucharist and it is i mean the eucharist is the prime sacrament isn't
0: it yeah 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 it's It's like we've got one foot in heaven when we're at mass, you know, we're we're already Mm. in in the heart of the Trinity, you know, because if if, if Jesus is inside of us and Jesus is in the heart of the Trinity, then we're in the Trinity. We're there.
2: Yeah. That's what it was like this morning. At mass. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about receiving communion because I think receiving communion, kneeling down on your tongue is better than receiving it in your hands. And I just Mm. think, and I'm not, not, not in a, And therefore, everyone needs to do this. That's not what I mean. But what I mean is I just think it's a more appropriate way for a creature to humble oneself to receive the king who humbles himself to feed us with himself.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's obviously a bit of a hot topic these days. There's so many angry online forums between Catholics fighting about this stuff. From my understanding, the... The liturgical reforms that happened around the Second Vatican Council were, were trying to go back to what was it like in the beginning, you know, from all the documentary evidence we've got of the early church, how did they celebrate the Mass? And what they found was it was, it was actually quite simple. Over time, because people were reflecting on the mystery, the liturgy became more and more elaborate. And there were a number of times where they tried to simplify it. I mean, from my understanding, the Council of Trent was actually a simplification of the liturgy uh, because prior to that it actually got very big and unwieldy. And I think once again, it's it's this tension of the incarnation Mm. that we understand the transcendence and the divinity of Christ. And we feel so humbled before that we want to be on our knees. But then the fact that Christ would humble himself to become human and I think in, in everyone, there's something which reacts to that. We, we can't handle the fact that Jesus would take on all the various bodily functions that we're ashamed of. You know, the very fact that Jesus would humble himself to become bread. Mm-hmm. There is this constant tension between the humanity and the divinity or the, the transcendence and the humility of God. And, and we feel completely unworthy, obviously, to be in the midst of that. So in terms of whether you should receive the Eucharist on the tongue or on the hand, I think it's got to be where the person personally is at. Um, I think definitely don't be judging anyone for not being holy or pious enough because everyone is wrestling with that mystery of the incarnation and that that tension in their own way, mm. you know. And, and for some people, they, they need the physical reminder to remind them of the reverence that that's needed, whereas for others, that they, they could be at mass anywhere, you know, and, and and they're still going to enter into that mystery.
2: Yeah. I just find it's probably more more the opposite these days. It's quite difficult to find churches that are set up to allow you to, like, you know, with kneelers and stuff at communion time that mm. actually allow you the option sort of thing. It's very, very much geared towards communion in the hand.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's very easy to actually gear Mass and the Eucharist towards we are coming together as a community as opposed to this is Jesus. And
0: that's a very valid tension in the mass. One of the big things that the second Vatican council tried to emphasize was the four ways that you encounter Jesus in the mass. And and what it was really reacting against was the fact that there'd been such an emphasis on the Eucharist that we'd actually lost something of the bigger mystery of the mass. Hmm. So this idea that, you know, coming to mass had become a private devotion, you know, where a person would go to mass, kneel by themselves, and it was just them and Jesus, and and really, I think what they'd realised, particularly from rediscovering a lot of these ancient documents, was that the original understanding was so much bigger. That mass is never a private devotion, and and that's something we've got to really emphasise very strongly. It's a communal worship. It's liturgy. You go to most parishes, and people will automatically sit as far away from the other people as possible, particularly but on a weekday days. mass. Well, I think we invented social distancing at weekday masses, like. You know, because everyone's coming in this mindset of it's me and Jesus where what, what what the second Vatican council emphasized was you encounter Christ in the Eucharist, in the word, in the priest and in the people. Mm. I think we're only just starting to really get comfortable with encountering Jesus in the word. You know, as, as you were saying, Sam, about being encouraged to sit down with the readings before mass and understand that that's a valid encounter, a, a transforming encounter. We, we understand encountering Christ in the priest but I think most people would struggle with encountering Christ in the community. You know, when was the last time you, you met someone who had a conversion because they met Jesus in the community? Uh, there's a bunch of people that you don't really know. Or yeah. Like. And they don't particularly talk to you <laughs> and everyone's racing out to the car park as fast as they can up to mass. Yeah. But, but, but there is something original like, like right at the origin of the, of the Eucharistic celebration in the early church, which we've lost. And and I think that was what they were trying to reclaim. I I don't think they did it particularly successfully. No, the way
1: it was worded to me, I I remember going through school and it being worded as the Eucharist is us coming together as the body of Christ. And so that's where a lot of my grappling had come from because I struggled with, well, why, why does that bit of bread symbolize us coming together as the body of Christ. It had mm. been it's as though they'd uh, assumed a certain base and they were trying to introduce something, but the base wasn't there to start with. And so the introduction of that, unfortunately, led to further yeah. either errors in understanding
0: or yeah. errors mm. in teaching. There's a famous quote by Augustine where he says, eat what you are so that you, be- so that you can become what you eat. Mm. So eat the body of Christ so that you can become the body of Christ. And, and once again, it comes back to this idea of the divine liturgy that, I mean, this is where we really need to do a whole bigger theology exposition of this, but we come to the mass as the body of Christ and the priest is standing in persona Christi Capitas, you know, in in the person of Christ as the head of the church, but you're standing there in the person of Christ as the body of the church Mm -hmm. and all of us together are Christ worshiping the father. And this is the thing most people don't understand is that the mass is jesus praying to his heavenly father pay attention to the the prayers next time you go to mass there's only one prayer in the eucharist addressed to jesus which we say just before we receive the eucharist everything else all eucharistic prayer is addressed to the father and and this is where it gets tricky trying to understand the the trinitarian theology but it's um it's christ offering the most perfect prayer of redemption and salvation to the father and and we we're participating in that we're part of that as the body but
1: this, this ties in with what you said in baptism in the baptism episode father dave that and, and you too marty that it is only in jesus and through jesus that we can enter heaven yeah
2: mm. um i have been noticing that since you mentioned that weeks ago i've been when the the eucharistic prayer is going on listening to that yeah and just listening more carefully than you know, ever before. And yeah, realizing that that this is, this is the prayer of Jesus to the Father.
0: And, and like I said, most people don't even know that that's what's going on. And if they do know it's what, that's what's going on, they don't understand why that's going on. You got to understand a bit about the Jewish feast of the Day of Atonement or, or Yom Kippur. So basically this is like the holiest feast in the Jewish calendar where they're, they're praying for the atonement of sins. That the high priest would go into the heart of the temple wearing a seamless garment which is the robe of a priest, and he would carry with himself big bowls of blood, the blood of the lambs and the oxen and bulls that they've just sacrificed. He carries it into the, into the Holy of Holies, and he prays these special prayers for the redemption of the world, and he throws this blood everywhere as part of the ritual. He then cleans himself off and changes into the, the garment of the bridegroom, And he comes out of the Holy of Holies dressed as the bridegroom, basically as this promise of forgiveness and redemption. Now, once again, this is what Jesus fulfills where he goes to the cross wearing a seamless garment. It then says in the letter to the Hebrews that he enters the true sanctuary, which is heaven. So not just the earthly sanctuary, but he he goes into the the heavenly sanctuary carrying not the blood of bulls and goats, but carrying his own blood. And so he then Mm. offers up the perfect prayer of redemption and salvation for the world until the second coming, when he will come again as the bridegroom to take everyone with him. And so what we're celebrating there in the mass is we're uniting ourselves with the prayer that Jesus is offering in the heavenly sanctuary, offering his own blood for the salvation of the world. And so the the words of the priest, he's basically giving voice to the words of Jesus as he prays for the world, for the sick, for the dying, for the church and, and basically praying for mercy. So that's a, we basically got this window opening to heaven and we're seeing what's happening there. Mm. So a few practicalities in
1: approaching the Eucharist and Father Dave, you have said before that sometimes you'll have people walking down the aisle, receiving communion. And then afterwards they realize, I shouldn't have done that. Mm. I probably shouldn't have come forward at this stage. So what are the the actual practicalities that we should be going through in order to prepare ourselves better for receiving our Lord?
0: I I, I meet a lot of people who are very uh, scrupulous about whether they should be receiving the Eucharist because they're not worthy. Great quote by, I think it was Alphonsus Liguri, who said that there are two types of people who need to stand next to a fireplace those who are cold so they can warm up and those who are warm so that they can stay warm. And then he says two types of people who need to come to the Eucharist, those who are sinners so that they can be healed and those who are not sinners so that they can stay healed uh, or, or not sin. Mm. The church is very clear saying, if you are in the state of mortal sin, you need to go to confession first. But most of the time I meet people who are not going to communion because they forgot to say their prayers that morning, you know, or they you know, swore a little bit in traffic that stuff doesn't classify as a mortal sin. Mm. The the mass itself has a number of times where we are asking for forgiveness. And and, and the whole process of the liturgy is calling to mind our sins and calling on the mercy of God so that we are worthy. So I think the key thing is to actually use those times well. So the penitential rite at the beginning of mass and then during the Lamb of God, you know, Mm -hmm. Lamb of God, I'm not worthy. Actually be repentant, but then go confidently in the mercy of God to be able to receive him.
2: So, so when you say those prayers, you must mean it?
0: Yeah, but but also trust that God means it.
2: Yeah. Because
0: I think, I think that's the bit that most people struggle with. You know, we we ask for forgiveness, but we're not actually confident that God does hand it out afterwards.
2: Mm. What about turning up before it starts?
0: Yeah, very good idea.
2: Like instead of <laughs> a few minutes after it starts.
0: Yes. I, I
2: really like St. Thomas Aquinas' prayer before Mass, for preparation for Mass, where he talks about, you know, I'm sick and I need a physician and I'm, and this kind of thing, Mm. which I don't often do, but I could look it up on my phone. I have done at times. I just think it's a really good preparation for the magnificence of what goes on at mass.
0: Mm. Yeah. And I think it's, it's good practice just to be there at least five minutes early, ideally about 15 minutes early, hang around for five minutes after mass to pray as well. Mm. Yeah. It's just going to take you deeper into that mystery.
2: Straight after mass or straight up straight after communion, and after Mass as well, like for that period of time when you've just received Jesus physically. I think it was, might have been Teresa of Avila that talked about business time to ask the Father, what, like, prime time to pray to the Father, having just received the Son physically. Mm. Yeah.
1: So don't waste that opportunity.
2: Yeah, I just think take it seriously. Like, here you go. Like, you know, he- heaven's open.
0: Yeah. It, yeah, it's, it's really claiming that, that grace, like, like so many times in the gospels where Jesus would touch someone and heal them. You've got Jesus right inside of you. I, I th- th- this was probably one of the moments when I really fell in love with the Eucharist. I was on a, my first summer school back when I was about 18, mm. no, actually no, it was my second. And, um. I'd eaten something dodgy. It was like some bad cold meat or something, which had been in the sun too long. And um, you know know how these big camps are. Hot hot cold meat. Hot cold meat.
2: Keeping keeping hot cold meat in the Mm. sun for hours.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'd been crook for days and I'd missed out on a bunch of stuff that had been going on. And it was the, the second last day I was at mass and I was feeling just crook in the guts. And I remember being so distracted all through mass. I'd just received the Eucharist and as I went back to my chair and knelt down, it was one of those prayers you pray when you're just sick and hot and bothered and you just couldn't care less. And I just said, look, Jesus, seeing that you're on the way down there right now, can you do something about my stomach? And, sure. um, and that was it. Like that's just all I prayed. But then five minutes later, I walked out of the church and I thought, I feel fantastic. Like I don't feel sick anymore. <laughs> and I just realized that, you know, he'd answered the prayers as... Mm. You
1: know, who was, was there a few saints? We're not
0: going anywhere until you
1: acknowledge the miracle. what no i'm going to go to the bigger ones so father dave there have been a number of saints who have lived primarily on the eucharist Mm. for a substantial amount of time was louis de montfort one of those his name just for some reason i associate louis de montfort Send to with it, but maybe not.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure. But, but yeah, there's been a number of very holy you know, priests and nuns and even lay people who have gone for decades without eating anything, only eat, eating the Eucharist. Mm. Yeah.
2: Which is like. Bigger yeah. than
0: your fast, Marty. <laughs> uh,
2: um, yeah, like physically, nutritionally, how is that possible? Mm. Well, supernaturally. I was going to say the um the our Father in Greek where where we translate through Latin to into English as our daily your daily bread but the mm. word the Greek word isn't daily it's more like supernatural mm. give us this Jesus says give us this day our supernatural bread what could he possibly be talking about
0: mm.
2: oh, it's the Eucharist you're looking confused
0: <laughs> I was assuming that was a rhetorical question <laughs> but this is why uh, various Catholic fans of the Lord of the Rings would suggest that Lemba's bread was an analogy of uh, the Eucharist. Yeah. The bread where you only need a small little bit of it and you can go forever without needing to eat. And
2: it didn't matter how old it was or how much you'd had of it. It still tasted good.
0: Mm. Mm. Although I believe that Tolkien wasn't, didn't actually intend that to be the case, but anyway.
2: An accidental (laughs) allegory.
0: Mm. That's a good name for a book, isn't it? The
1: accidental allegory. I've just looked up uh, one Corinthians.
2: Speaking awesome. of books.
1: Yes, big one. Paul's letter to Corinthians. And this is uh, chapter 11, verse 27 onwards. And Saint Paul writes, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and, and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died that so ties in really strongly there with what you 're just talking about father dave there this is, this is not something we just come th- come forward to whimsically. There is something incredibly profound here and supernatural mm, that yeah. doesn't just that doesn 't just bless us with a nice feeling of being together, but genuinely draws us into the body of Christ, into the Trinity.
0: Mm. Yeah. We we, we need to understand the the seriousness of it. Let's see if I could quickly look up the the quote. There's a...
1: I love that. Sorry. I love that St. Paul finishes this particular segment by saying about the other things, I will give directions when I come. Yeah. So it's not actually written here. The other things. For that, go to mass, see the church.
0: (laughs) Just, just look at this quote. There's a, an author, Annie Dillard. She, she was a Christian and became Catholic. Just, just, just to read this to you, she says, Why do people in church seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a packaged tour of the absolute? Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Our ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may some someday wake up and take offense, or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. Wow. So that, that's, that's written by a convert to Catholicism who was obviously... <laughs> A little bit scandalised by the fact that everyone looks so bored.
1: Yeah. Mm. Well, you do hear of some of the saints who have visions of what is actually happening at mass, and it is something that I, I think if if we saw it personally, we'd be running to mass every single day, joyfully, excited, with extraordinary humility. Yeah, it's not and a, like and a profound
2: love. Well, that's right. It's not like it's not like you're doing God a favour by going to mass. He's doing you a favour by you going to mass.
0: Well, in a sense, you are because He loves you. I, like, like. If if someone who you desperately love turns up, they're doing you a favor. Yeah. But but because it, it goes both ways.
2: There's a sign up. There's a sign. There's a poster up outside the Adoration Chapel at St. Bernadette's that says, once you understand the Eucharist, you can never leave the church. Not because the church won't let you, but because you won't want to.
0: I was just about to read exactly the same quote. I've got it here on my computer. <laughs> Who's it, Where's it from? It, it, it's not attributed to anybody.
2: All oh, right. Yeah, once well, you it's understand us. the Eucharist, it's, us. it's you... our quote.
0: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> once you understand the Eucharist, you can never leave the church, not because the church won't let you, but because your heart won't let you.
1: Amen. Well, shall we? Shall we wrap up here? Because I think we should. I think we should,
2: and I, I think for once, Father Dave, would you like to actually say a prayer?
1: <laughs> sure.
2: You know, not just the blessing at the end.
1: I feel like this is Christmas because if we go to bed now, then then we're getting closer to getting up early in the morning to get to the next podcast on Eucharistic Miracle.
0: That's right. We just hope that it comes together. Mm. Anyway, let's pray for that. Lord, we hold up to you, all those who are listening. We pray that they would fall deeper in love with you in the Eucharist, that you would stir up our hearts just to really find our true homeland in the Mass. Open our eyes to see your glory in the the bread and the wine, in your body and blood. And Lord, we pray your blessing on us here and on anyone who's listening. Blessing of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: Amen. Amen.